This podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Vitz School of Governance. For more information, visit visit their website on www.vitz.ac.za/wsg. So, I am responsible for this third masterclass in our series, which are designed to aid your understanding in the basic concepts and theories around governance, as well as to explore some cutting-edge trends in the field. And it's also an opportunity for us to introduce you to our school and to give insights into the content and nature of the types of issues that we focus on. So a little bit more about me before I get started. It's always nice to know who you are listening to. I moved here to South Africa two years ago to join the WSG, BIT School of Governance, that is. And I've been working on and in conflict-affected and transitional settings for some two decades or more as a scholar, practitioner, policy advisor, primarily linked often to the United Nations as well as civil society. And this work has taken me to many different countries around the world, including Yemen, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Colombia, Bosnia and Herzegovina and Cyprus and Somalia and Sierra Leone, Liberia. I lived in Liberia and Zimbabwe for seven years. So many of these experiences have been quite informative in building my experience and also my perspective, particularly on conflict and peace building. So my specialty lies in understanding the processes of building and sustaining peace and resolving and preventing conflict, and in particular through transformative social change, how we understand resilient and inclusive social contracts, um, as well as how all of these contribute to more inclusive governance and development. And my scholarly training is in peace and conflict studies. So last week's masterclass, my colleague Karen Abrahams reflected on the richness of our school in terms of disciplinary approaches to governance. And indeed, similarly, in the field of peace and conflict studies and in security studies, we also have very rich perspectives and varying disciplinary approaches within those areas. So this thinking about the relationship of peace, security, and governance indeed covers quite a rich and complex area, a landscape. And I will be introducing you to some of that today. So I'm going to talk to you about this question of why is peace and security central to good governance? And to answer this question, I'm going to first talk a bit about the conflict, security, violence, and now disaster landscape that we find ourselves confronting. I'm going to say a bit about the shifting policy landscape, as well as the shifting scholarly landscape, both in the fields of security studies, as well as peace and conflict studies. And then I'll reflect a bit on the centrality of all of this with governance. And I'm hoping to convince you that indeed peace and security are quite fundamental to good governance. And this is not just relevant to peace and security practitioners, but to all governance development scholars and practitioners and policymakers. And of course, this has something to do simply with the fact that conflict and violence and fragility affects every country in the world in different ways. But it also has to do with the fact that scholars and practitioners from all fields need to understand the complex landscape that we face and have the analytical tools and framings to help factor this awareness into planning and policymaking and the delivery of governance and development. So with no further ado, looking first at this question of the landscapes that we are confronting and how they're changing over time and becoming much more complex, confounding our greatest abilities and understandings about how to deal with them. So first of all, in the era of conflict, violent conflict is on the rise again after it had been in a period of decline and it's increasing in complexity in ways that really rock the foundations of our interstate system. 
And in particular, the notion of war reversion, countries going back into conflict, is rampant. The vast majority of countries that actually achieve peace at some level revert back to war. And this happens often very quickly. This is, of course, evidence that our approaches to peace are not working. For Africa, this is particularly important because about 50% of armed conflict is occurring in Africa. And secondly, the changing nature of war suggests a lot of trouble for the state in particular. And this is because there is a vast proliferation of non-state actor-related conflict and also a rise in violent extremism. And the fragmentation and informality of non-state actor-related conflict is particularly vital as a concern because they tend to resist rule-based processes and reject international humanitarian law. And they are profoundly challenging traditional approaches to peacemaking, peacekeeping, and peacebuilding. And while interstate conflict, as many of us know, is pretty much a thing of the past, wars are internationalizing. And this is fueled by organized crime, the wide availability of small arms and light weapons, which really transcend the boundaries and the capacities of states to cope. So the second area of real concern around the landscape is fragility. Right. And this is a prevailing phenomenon, particularly for Africa. According to the 2019 Fragile States Index, half of African countries are categorized as in the high warning or very high alert categories. Now, of course, there's plenty of room to question um, the methodology shaping fragility assessment and how that works. But the sad truth is that Africa tends to rank high in all of them. And conceptualizing fragility historically has tended to focus on questions of states lacking capacity, will, or legitimacy to deliver basic services and to carry out basic functions expected um, by society across their territory. But it's also to do with deficiency in maintaining good relations with society, which really gets at the heart of the notion of a social contract. There's also increasing awareness, however, that fragility is very context-dependent and it occurs locally and in different forms. And there's now a multidimensional framing gaining policy consensus through the OECD that is linked to risk and the coping capacities of the state. And this actually helps us move away from state-bound analysis, right, which is important because we need to better acknowledge and confront and tackle the transnational and international drivers of conflict and fragility. So the complexity of violent conflict and fragility is also intermixing with violence And basically, these social diseases are pervasive in their toxic intermixing, and they really challenge the pursuit of peace. So while they're not guaranteed to occur together, in the last three decades, 70% of fragile states have experienced conflict. And contexts of fragility are associated with higher levels of violence, including homicide, gender violence, social violence, and terrorism. So you really see these phenomena interacting in harmful ways. The highest prevalence of risk of deaths from different kinds of violence, including homicide, conflict, and terrorism, again, occurs in Africa. And there's a growing convergence between conflict and fragile contexts and poverty. So we predict that by 2035, 85% of the world's extremely poor people will be living in these areas. So just thinking then, you know, why is conflict, fragility, and violence, why is this landscape important to governance? And there's a number of intersections there as well. So if we accept the notion that State fragility is about the state's inability to deliver effectively and to foster constructive state-society relations. We can see clearly that governance is really at the core of both of these, both nationally and in international institutions. And in such contexts, we especially see the politicization of systems of decision-making processes 
And this is often linked to the notion of horizontal inequalities, that is racial, ethnic, and religious inequalities between groups. And this has much, of course, to do with the history of colonialism. And horizontal inequalities are a pervasive and consistent driver of violent conflict and an outcome of bad governance. So as well, we see that state fragility is often linked to flawed or failed political settlements, particularly where exclusive governance is a key factor. And while violent conflict has numerous root causes, weak or corrupt governance and governing institutions is one that pretty much all core conflict theorists would agree on. And we can see that fragility analysis is also deeply linked to this notion of captured or securitized or predatory or quasi-states, malfunctioning states. And much of this literature points to the weakness of the state and its institutions, which enable elites to abuse power for personal gain. So much of this thinking focuses on the need to transform state institutions and uncapture them from the neo-patrimonial manipulations of elites and to develop institutional arrangements that promote accountability, transparency, and meaningful societal participation in governance, which my colleague Ivor Sarakinsky spoke about in some depth last week. And now, if that's not enough, fragility, conflict, and violence, we can add disaster to the mix, which is our current COVID-19 pandemic. So COVID-19, of course, has brought crisis to the doorstep of every country in the world. And this multidimensional global pandemic is really revealing deep vulnerabilities of basic systems and institutions, as we know, in all of our countries, as well as production networks and financial markets. And it's spotlighting the failure of governments to act in coordinated and coherent ways, both internally and internationally, and the deep fragility of institutions across rich and poor countries alike. It's also unearthing the deep polarizations prominent within states and societies, broken or wounded social contracts. And it's laying bare profound inequalities within and between countries. And the poor and marginalized people and communities are impacted most severely, those who can least afford to be. So of course, pandemics and disasters are not new and their intermixing with conflict is not new, but they are increasing with climate change and as a result of our environmental and political abuses. And the costs are astronomical for the international community, as well as for every citizen around the world, as we can all feel. With conflict and humanitarian costs increasing unmanageably, concerted efforts towards prevention of conflict and disaster and the escalation and their escalation as well, and how we can sustain peace in ways that ensure resilience as well. So with this fairly unhappy state of affairs, in terms of our landscape, we also have a shift in policy landscape, endeavoring to try and address all of this. So prior to the pandemic, at the policy level, we have seen a rising consensus on the profound importance of peace and how to sustain it and how to prevent violent conflict. The African Union, for example, its Agenda 2063, holds a peaceful and secure continent as one of its seven aspirations. And the goal to silence the guns by 2020 is at the core, underpinned by the need for dialogue-focused conflict prevention. Similarly, within the United Nations system, we saw in 2016 twin Security Council and General Assembly resolutions, which focused on preventing violent conflict and sustaining peace. And with our SDG, the Sustaining, De Sustaining Development Goals, um, we have also seen in this new global development framework an effort to place peace at the core as well. It's both as a cross-cutting pillar identified in the preamble, as well as 
It has its own specific goal, Goal 16, which is focused on drawing attention to peace, justice, and strong institutions, which are, of course, at the heart of good governance and seen as necessary means to achieve the development goals. And then at national levels, many nations have streams or policies or departments that focus on peace in various ways. For example, South Africa has a white paper on its foreign policy, which speaks of diplomacy based on Ubuntu, that is collaboration, partnership, and cooperation, and not conflict and competition. So all of this suggests a more holistic human and environment-centered notion of security and peace and how we can achieve and sustain them. And in terms of the policy emphasis on fragility, it's not quite as embraced at the top levels, in particular not in the United Nations, because many member states do not want to identify with the notion of fragility. However, there is an important and growing movement of states, societies, civil societies, and international organizations that really does recognize the term. And at the heart of this movement is the G7+, Plus, which is an intergovernmental voluntary organization bringing together countries affected by conflict and fragility. And it has 20 member countries at present. Most of them are African countries. And they're making a critical impact on the policy world. In particular, the World Bank, for example, has shifted a considerable higher percentage of its funding towards this group of countries, recognizing the deep intermingling of fragility, poverty, and challenges for development and economic growth. We also see in the policy realm a growing movement of thinkers and policymakers, as well as scholars and activists globally, that are demanding that we build back better, particularly in the state of this pandemic, that we, and this notion is coming through what's called the triple nexus, which is the linking of humanitarian development and peace issues and analyses and policy interventions to support more coherent and impactful results. And this means understanding the complexity that's in play, as well as building resilience in our institutions and societies and improving policy and institutional coherence and coordination while employing much more evidence-based approaches as well as conflict sensitivity, maintaining an awareness of what is driving conflict and fragility and ensuring that's factored into policymaking. And it's also focused on seizing opportunities. How do we seize this opportunity of the pandemic in order to transform policies and practices in ways that synergize different sectors and priorities and really try to get at the interdisciplinary nature of causes of vulnerabilities, conflict, and fragility. And the social contract is also coming as a lens into this this discourse. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, for example, recently pointed to the need for a new social contract for a new era, and in particular targeting inequality, and in particular within global institutions with a view to enabling fairer globalization. You know, these are some very exciting developments even coming through the painful aspects of of a pandemic. Many are proposing that the SDGs can be a framework for post-COVID recovery with the view that this is a universal agenda and focused on transformation, but more critical scholars would argue that there's limitations in this framework for tackling the international dimensions of inequality, which they would argue are rooted in more neoliberal macroeconomic models, which are still in play. So now moving to the shifting scholarly landscape, And first, in the area of security studies, the field of security studies has undergone quite a significant transformation over the past few decades, where the traditional realpolitik dominant paradigm, which inspired security practice, focusing on the pursuit of national or state interests, security through threat of force or deterrence, and protection of state sovereignty, have increasingly come under attack by critical scholars from a range of different paradigmatic approaches and fields. 
And security threats and challenges in this realm have increasingly been recognized as far more interlinked with political, social, and economic threats. And thus, you know, they can't be contained within borders or disciplines. So Barry Busan's um, 1983 book, People, States, and Fear, was one book that cracked open the discipline, creating space for new thinking and critical approaches. And it undermined that the four S's in security were no longer relevant, that it was just about states, and that the strategy was primarily about the use of force, and that science or realist-based approaches were no longer the most important. It now had to be open to new approaches and paradigms, and that the status quo was finished. It was time for radical change to appreciate context and people. And hence the advancement and virtual adoption of a movement towards more human security-oriented approach. And this gained traction in the 1990s. The human security model embodied all elements of human development, which was considered the freedom from want, as well as um, the freedom from fear, which is the security dimension. So it brought these two together. And it grew in particular in resistance to the neoliberal orthodox economic growth agenda, which of course was particularly powerful in the form of structural adjustment policies, which were very common in Africa, Latin America, and everywhere else around the world in different forms. So despite this considered policy consensus in Africa about the value of human security, many would argue that the integrated holistic strategy and set of approaches and vision is very far from being met still. So the question arises, if we have human security, why do we need to study and understand peace? And now we'll delve into this question through looking at peace studies. What is peace studies? So simply put, the study of peace is really focused on that precisely, like what is peace, as well as what are the drivers of conflict, and what are the means of building and sustaining peace and preventing violent conflict, all of which there seems to be a consensus that it has to be inclusive and it has to be justice-oriented, it has to address injustice. And probably the most common and helpful and basic articulation of a definition of peace distinguishes between negative peace and positive peace. And the negative peace is the absence of direct violence, while positive peace is the presence of social justice and elimination of root causes of violence and conflict. And Norwegian sociologist Johan Galtung, who's considered one of the fathers of peace studies, captured the sentiment coming out of the Global South in the 1970s and 80s that peace was more than simply deterrence, a preoccupation of Western male thinkers concerned with superpower planning and interests of the industrialized world. And it had to be much more, and it became increasingly intertwined during that period with the growing protests from developing countries against colonialism and other forms of injustice. And so for sure, we've seen um, that African scholars and Global South scholars tend to be much more aligned with this positive dimension of peace, orientation towards peace. In fact, Emmanuel Hansen, an African scholar, really talked about the peace and development problematique being deeply intertwined. And peace is not just about the resolution of conflict, but about transforming unjust socioeconomic systems and their outcomes at both national and international level, and notably those rooted in the historic North-South relations and perpetuated by globalization. So we've seen a rise of peace studies over a number of decades, although it started in Scandinavia in the late 1800s, and it's really started to flourish in Africa and across the global south over the last decade or more. And digging more into the topic, so I'm going to now talk about a number of generations of thought in peace building, right? And this effectively captures, I believe, the questions guiding both peace studies, the nature of peace studies, as well as 
where the focus of our field is now, right, on this notion of peace building. And why should we look through this lens? I mean, I think it allows us to see the evolution and dynamism of our field and to glean insight into the complexity of global challenges in addressing not just conflict, but also fragility and disaster. So I'm going to focus on five of these generations of thoughts, which I think are quite big ones in our field. And it'll give you insight into how we are thinking about tackling these challenges from different perspectives. So first is the area of structural peace building. And this has focused for a number of decades on understanding and framing conflict as rooted in asymmetrical power relations and uneven processes of development. And it's also focused on peace building as a process of transforming systems and structures accordingly. So a stream of thinkers has tried to shape this kind of paradigmatic approach or generation of thought, as I've been calling it. And these include Galtung and Hansen, like we've just spoken about, and many others who broadly frame peace in this way with concerted attention to issues of equitable development and distributive justice as being crucial for transforming conflict at its roots. And many Global South scholars, as I've said previously, tend to value and support this more positive notion of peace that's rooted in structures and understanding the structures of violence, as well as policymakers over time, and particularly those in Africa, for example, who sought to provide alternatives to the neoliberal orthodoxy in play. And in the 1990s, we also saw a quite a resurgence of focus in this area, in part as a response to the tendency to theorize about the Rwandan genocide as being ethnic in nature or rooted in psychosocial dynamics rather than structural and historical ones. And these structural peace building is still thriving um, literature and debates that focus around issues of, for example, war economies, criminality and profiting from peace, power asymmetries within and between societies, and the natural resource dimensions of war. So the second area, which is also quite a dominant area, is around liberal peace building. And the notion of the liberal peace-building agenda, which stems from the origins of, of liberalism itself, assumes that broadening and deepening of liberalization across the economy and politics, like through rapid marketization as well as elections, provides a consummate pathway towards peace. And it has roots in classical philosophy, but it also gained quite a traction with liberal triumphalism that accompanied the fall of the Soviet Union. And it was shaped by wider neoliberal trends dominating the international financial policy institutions, especially in the 1990s, resulting in lack of attention to the state and the pulling back of the state and its institutions and an undermining of fragile local economies. This was eventually acknowledged, notably in Rome Paris's book At War's End in 2004, where it was acknowledged that countries emerging from conflict and fragility require robust institutions to drive and achieve development. And in fact, this was something that the classical philosophers actually upheld. They upheld and valued the notion of strong state institutions, but they were sadly wiped away through the neoliberal um, approach to economics and politics in particular in the 1990s. So more widely, this critical scholarship around liberal peace building began thriving in the last 15, 20 years. And these critiques have focused on the notion that such interventions, liberal peace building interventions, including by the UN, especially by the UN, have failed to grasp and effectively respond to the complex landscapes and transitions in play, and that they've been too much rooted in Western institutions and modeled on Western institutions and underpinned with linear assumptions and insufficiently engaging with local contexts and dynamics and capacities, which obviously hold greater promise for genuine national ownership 
and sustaining peace. And also they have failed to recognize that international contexts tend to shape power and resource distribution in ways that hurt fragile and conflict-affected states. For example, by prematurely inserting economies into global trading financial circuits and trading circuits and exposing local producers and public treasuries to destabilizing financial fluctuations, which can really trigger violence. And also liberal peace building has even created civil societies in a liberal image which has often undermined the more organic approaches that civil society has and their formations and often resulted in fueling state society tensions. We see this in the case of Zimbabwe as particularly illustrative. And African scholars have also been really at the core of this critique, um, suggesting that, that liberal peace building has blocked the ability to meet human needs and to transform institutions and root causes of conflict and fragility, and that it's undermined the role of national governments in the process. And, you know, peace building is supposed to be nationally owned. This approach just focused too much on the individual rather than the community and on elite political and military agreements rather than nationally owned ones. And that has marginalized customary authorities and forms of power. So we have seen a flourishing of efforts to find alternatives to the liberal peace building agenda. And the next one that I'm going to talk about is the local turn. And the local turn, as it's been coined, has reignited attention to local and indigenous people and communities and their narratives and their dynamics, the dynamics in play at local level, and the conditions and lived experiences of everyday people and everyday communities. And while policy and institutional efforts focusing on the local are not necessarily new, efforts to understand and promote the bottom-up peace building and to foster participation and inclusion have been in play for a while. These approaches institutionally have been challenged by the state-centric engagement of deemed necessary for member states and between member states and the honoring of sovereignty. And also it's been challenged by the myriad dilemmas of understanding who is really legitimate at local level and a lot of contestation around this. So despite the dominance of Northern academics in this literature, including some visionary thinkers like Roger McGinty and Oliver Richmond, African scholars and approaches feature very strongly in this tradition where it is argued that Western peace and justice approaches do not have the right focus, where social and psychological healing and restoration of relations is critical, and that there's greater emphasis needed to understand how indigenous and local capacities and approaches can inform the development and transformation of institutions towards the sustaining of peace. So the fourth one that I'm talking about, the fourth generation of thought, is around hybridity. And hybridity, um, an awareness of hybridity and thinking around an approach to peace building has grown both in terms of uh, a reaction to liberal peace building and also in a sense to local peace building. We're aiming to counter the weaknesses of both by engaging with local contexts and agencies on one hand and also on addressing the power and agency of national and international structures and actors on the other. And hybrid peace building seeks to understand and capture the importance of the diversity and the heterogeneity within societies where hybrid political orders exist and evolve. And this is particularly the case in, in conflict settings and in fragile settings where there's many competing rules and claims to power and authority and legitimacy. And it often reflects mixes of Western and indigenous and formal and informal traditions. So what does this mean concretely? Well, while many hybridity scholars seek to understand the international and local interface. Others tend to focus on the endogenous nature of hybridity, that is that which originates from within local and national systems or settings. And in practice, 
opportunities are often missed to realize the pathways for achieving more endogenous forms of peacebuilding and hybrid peace. So, for example, in a large multi-country study that I directed around forging resilient social contracts in nine countries, customary authorities and other non-state actors were often left out of peacebuilding and political settlement processes. They weren't systematically integrated into the processes, and this hurt the sustainability and inclusivity of the political settlement. And this occurred in Colombia, Nepal, South Sudan, Yemen, and Zimbabwe. So while it's not easy, nobody says it's easy to integrate such actors into into complementary approaches and systems, a critical fact is that customary authorities often hold much higher levels of trust with the public than formal civic institutions do, given their role in delivering basic services and many other aspects of, of social and political. And this core value of trust is really quite important when we're talking about the ability to achieve social cohesion and peace. And there's plenty of research on this. Afrobarometer, for example, found this to be true, that that customary authorities tend to hold much higher levels of trust across much of Africa. So the critical challenge for scholars and practitioners then is to better understand how customary authorities can, uh, how they function, how they can hold greater legitimacy and how they influence political economy and social spheres, and how their efforts and assets can be harmonized and harnessed for peace. So the fifth school of thought that I'm going to talk about is transformative and decolonial peace. And this is another evolving generation of thought, which intermixes the movement and scholarship around decoloniality that's being driven in particular by Southern scholars and especially South Africans. So historically, this school of thought parallels and draws upon the structural peacebuilding tradition, but it has held um, a particular focus around transforming, transforming conflict, transforming institutions, transforming the root causes or systemic causes in conflict. And with respect to institutions, the idea is that we can't just reform or rebuild institutions, we need to address the root causes and ensure that they are transformed in ways so that they won't just start operating as they did during the conflict or in ways that led to conflict or in ways that were corrupt and captured and so forth. And transformation, it's rooted in many, many disciplines, but it's also strongly features as an an epistemological approach through critical theory or transformative research paradigm, as some call it. And it offers us a means to address the complex multi-sectoral and multidisciplinary aspects of conflict and fragility with a common approach rooted in a singular methodology. And it's focused on emancipatory politics and understanding how knowledge and power is historical and structural and always changing. So African scholarship on transformation is also being intertwined with the thinking around decolonization and the rich literature on decoloniality. Professor Zondi from the University of Pretoria, for example, describes decolonial peace as requiring requiring dealing with the colonial aspects of the inherited state and its political economy and its underlying paradigm of violence, war, and colonization. So there's much more to say about this, but you will have to join our master's class if you or courses if you want to dig more into this with me. So lastly, just I'm going to say something about this triple nexus and the pandemic. And while there is an integrated focus on humanitarian development and peace efforts that has gone on for, for decades, it arguably now must be really consolidated into a strong school of thought, I would argue, in peace building, requiring the innovative attention of our scholars. And I'm presently integrating this into my courses and have an elective I'm developing specifically on this topic. 
And I would just say that we just can't afford to live and work in silos when the complexity of the world around us is increasingly dictating our future as the COVID-19 is revealing. So just by way of conclusions, I hope that this wander through historical and contextual evolution of peace and security has revealed both the vital importance of these topics in their own right, as well as the deep engagement with complexity, their deep engagement with complexity. That is that no conflict is monocausal and no efforts to achieve peace will be successful if they're rooted in one sector or discipline. And critically, I hope I've convinced you of the profound interconnections of these fields with governance. They include the ways in which poor governance is both a cause of conflict and fragility, as well as how central it is to attaining and sustaining peace. And as well, which we will have to explore in another time, not enough time here, that good governance is central to how successful countries are stopping and preventing the spread of COVID-19, which I can discuss more in the Q&A if you like. And governance and its links with peace and security are also core to achieving resilient social contracts, which in turn are key to peace and inclusive peace and development. And this we also have not had time to explore, but I'm happy to share in the Q&A. And lastly, I will make a plug for our program and these masterclasses. First, just noting that our peace and security stream within governance in our school traditionally has been focused more on traditional security, and we're now moving to capture much more of this evolving landscape. And so we hope to see many of you joining us in the future with the view to transforming these global challenges. And lastly, just in terms of our masterclasses, we hope you very much will stay tuned for them. And they're focusing on issues of governance through the lens of water, how economics affects public policy, ME as a governance intervention, and critical approaches to gender and governance in Africa, and many more. So thank you very much. I'm happy to discuss with you and take questions. Hi, Erin. Thank you so much for that presentation. That was really, really good and informative. I'm going to go through the questions and then you can respond. I'm going to ask you, so there's like a few on the Q&A. So the first one is, the liberal peace building is narrowly defined according to the West. And this is not only deprived voices of the less powerful countries. If this trajectory is correct, what will be your recommendation to powerless countries? So I think it's a very, very interesting question. And I have painted a picture of the challenges um, of liberal peace building and, um, you know, the critiques, which are very, very important. And that's not to say that, um, you know, the whole scholarly world and certainly the policy world um, wants to just eliminate the notion of liberalism and how it affects peace building, right? I think if we look at the SDGs, we can certainly see many aspects of liberalism, but with a lot more um, sensitivity and care for um, how it affects the collective, right? And how we can also simultaneously work towards more um, social justice in the process of, of liberalizing um, economies or liberalizing politics. And, you know, of course, there's those who support liberalizing economies and or liberalizing politics. So it's quite a complex uh, and rich set of debates. Um, and I think it's important that we actually don't say it's just Western, right? And this, similarly in my work on the social contract, there's a tendency to somehow often throw the baby out with the bathwater and just say, oh, these concepts are Western and liberal and classical and therefore they're not um, valuable to, to the global South or to people in communities around the world. 
And I think if we look deeply, we find plenty of ways in which we can challenge those views and see that respect, interest in, in human rights or interest in democracy is, is very deeply rooted around the world. People want these values and appreciate these values. Um, and indeed, the forms and in, unfortunately, the forms in which they've often been undertaken have been imposed and have been driven in ways that aren't respectful and reflecting of the diversity uh, around the world and the ways in which they actually are organic and evolve in different forms. So that's, I think, how I would answer that question. Thank you. The next question, Africa as a continent is not part of the UN Secretary Council, despite calls to redress this imbalance. This has direct implications in how Africa conducts, settles state political conflicts and governance issues tend to be decided for the continent. Is it not the right time for Africa to push further this agenda or reconsider her marriage to UN programs? So I think in terms of the UN, certainly Africa is extremely involved in the UN at all different levels. And South Africa is a member of the Security Council. And, you know, there's quite a lot of debate and reflection within South Africa amongst civil society and also amongst African nations, you know, that Africa needs to play a much stronger role in the Security Council. I think African countries are, and I think it's up to African civil society in particular to play a much stronger advocacy role in helping to shape what that looks like and to help educate leaders as well, right? So I think there has been some disappointment about um, the impact that the South African government has had in the Security Council. But I think it's it's evolving and developing in ways that are quite important. And of course, South Africa is also the head of, of the African Union at present. And so it's a crucial opportunity to both link peace and security issues and development issues with stronger attention also to governance, because it's a chance for African countries to participate in the governing, the ways in which you know these issues are addressed globally. Since peace has been paradigmatic development in the last few decades, why do you think this hasn't been accompanied by the same developments in practice and implementation, especially in Africa. Well, I don't know if that's true. I would argue that actually the dominant approaches driven by the United Nations, the African Union, you know, tend to be focusing more on, on the liberal peace building agenda. I think it's much more diverse and complex when you get down to the ground and certainly how civil society and how different UN agencies and different departments and uh, arenas of the African Union also have a much more complex and I would say diverse set of approaches that do take on board, for example, the local turn and that do engage in hybrid peace building in different ways and are trying to really, you know, really are at the forefront in in many aspects of, of driving these more, I would call progressive and important approaches that are addressing really the complexity of violence, conflict and fragility. Okay, I think Sitimbile had a follow-on question about the permanent being South Africa being a permanent member because she says, don't you think it's time that it's more permanent member? Yes, absolutely. Definitely. And I think, you know, it's very, very complex to see real change occur in the Security Council. We've seen, you know, just how how challenging it is with the United States and China in particular at loggerheads over so many issues and just, you know, being able to come up with a consensus perspective on COVID-19 has been extraordinarily difficult. So while I think there's huge interest and desire in seeing an African country uh, or more, more than one, and other countries from the global south being becoming permanent members of the Security Council, it's probably still going to take 
take time to build enough momentum to be able to push that through. But hopefully we'll be surprised and it will come sooner rather than later. Thank you. In terms of removing siloed barriers, how would you incentivize this behavior? Most KPAs and KIPs focus on things in your immediate focus. Even if collaborative KPIs are added, they usually carry a lower rating. Uh, I have to uh, admit those are acronyms. I'm not sure I know. But in terms of getting past silos, I mean, this is extraordinarily difficult and not just at national levels, at international levels. I mean, this is, you know, the UN has been trying to act as one, as a one UN since its inception, I think. And, you know, it really confronts, it's really about the extraordinary challenge of coordination and of turf wars, you know, everyone wants to be in charge and nobody wants to be coordinated. And, you know, it's also just about how do we, yeah, how do we reconcile different approaches that are deeply rooted in, in different assumptions, understandings, methodologies, you know, it's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, there are, there are a lot of uh, valuable experiences and practices that are in play at different levels, trying to build whole of government approaches or, I mean, the UN has transformed its institutional arrangements multiple times to try to um, work in this direction. So I think there are examples. It's not impossible. You know, I remember when, um, when I began, when I was working in the UN, and at one point we were just like, ah, how do we include all of these cross-cutting issues into the development framework? It's impossible. There's just too many. But when we began to do the analysis, really bringing it down to what are the core priorities and core issues that are underneath these many, many different sectors and different approaches, it's, you could see a lot of continuity and synergy at the root. So I think it's about having the right facilitators in particular to bring together different sectoral representatives and to be able to have a broader vision. And conflict theorists would say that's what conflict sensitivity is, right? So you look, you look to have a common analysis of conflict, for example, or of the drivers of fragility. And then you use that as a lens to bring the various sectors and around the table to have a common approach to addressing the issues. So I think you have to have some kind of common analysis and common framework or common methodology and good facilitation and good leadership to be able to make that happen. The next question is, how do we reconcile the peace and security issue on the continent with economic objectives? As you mentioned, there has been multidimensional approaches in the academic realm that spans decolonial approaches, gender considerations, growing environmental concerns. However, this does not seem to have infiltrated government institutions and international organizations. That's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> so, I mean, I think now is the time, and I think if there's any positive coming out of the pandemic and the coronavirus, it's that we have to recognize the complexity of what's in our, you know, what's in our laps. And I think that there there is a convergence if you look at what a lot of global leaders are saying and, and what a lot of you know, yeah, policymakers from different realms are pointing in the direction of engaging this complexity through better governance, better leadership, better coordination, in particular focusing on inequality. I mean, I think we're really seeing a growing consensus and awareness around the scourge of inequality and how that is underlying so many so many areas of, of our uh, complexity and, um, and how it can also provide a framing for creating new, new ways of thinking. 
in particular, not just inequality, but also exclusion, right? So there's a big movement around exclusion and inclusion and how do we have more inclusive policies. So I think it's about finding these key concepts and drivers, right? So what is going to bring people together, different communities of practice and scholarship to focus in a way that will make a real change and to have a limited number of priorities, but transformative priorities that allow a focus and a collaborative approach to make a real difference. Okay, I think the question was, what do you say about the recent ISIS threats that South Africa has been getting? So the person clarified. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I don't think I can comment on that. I, I don't know. I don't know about the specific threat, but we are, as a global community working on peace and development, I think realizing the importance of uh, having more innovative and transformative approaches to addressing violent extremism that are very much rooted in looking at the root causes, right? And not just trying to contain um, the threat, but actually really trying to get to the, the root causes because it's so pervasive now and you know just multiplying so many different kinds of risks that we actually really need to get to what is driving it in the first place. And I think there, there's a lot of emerging consensus around that too, right? That we have to really understand forms of, of exclusion in particular and how do we transform the root causes of exclusion in different societies. How have initiatives of peace and security incorporated dealt with corruption as a threat to sustaining peace and security? Well, I think that's a great question. And uh, I think it's definitely a core part of what conflict and peace theories look at. Um, You know, like any discipline, there's different approaches. So some would focus more on the politically economy parts of, of the of the discipline and um, focus more on the economic drivers. But I think most would place corruption and bad governance as a core driver of conflict, but not just at the national level, but also at the international level, right? Even, I mean, seeing the the UN Secretary General saying that at the core of a new social contract to address uh, the pandemic has to be addressing the inequality perpetuated by our global financial and other international institutions. So. I think, you know, there's a recognition that injustice and corruption comes in many forms, um, but is very much at the heart of seeking how we address conflict and fragility. And in peace studies, you know, I mean, I think it comes, oftentimes it comes in different discourses. So again, as I pointed out in the talk, horizontal inequalities are a big thing that we focus on in peace studies, which is really combines both the notion of inequality by group is about economic inequality, but it's also about political inequality. and key is bad governance because it all comes down to corrupt and bad governance. It's about supporting your own group at the expense of others, which is another form of corruption. So yes, it's very much at the heart of different aspects of what we look at in peace and conflict studies. We're coming close to our time. So I'm going to go through these questions. The last three, do you think the world have social contracts with the World Health Organization and how can they be held responsible and how do they account? That's one question. The next one is, you provided much background on security and peace history and ideological focuses. How would you then define and conceptualize governance? And how do these three aspects work together and impact one another? The last one is, is it a matter of choosing or not choosing a model, liberal models versus community models, or choosing whether Western or African? Does the answer not lie rather in hybrid models towards peace building? Okay, so I think just in terms of governance, I mean, I think I've 
tried to lay out my views there. And I wouldn't describe it dissimilarly to how Prof. Saraskinsky articulated governance in really about steering a ship, right? And in terms of really focusing on issues of participation and accountability, right? So how is governance undertaken from a peace and conflict perspective, right? And I've tried to show the many different ways in which they interact, so I won't repeat those, but at the core of governance contributing to peace is about doing so in conflict-sensitive ways. So governance needs to understand what are the drivers of conflict and fragility within a particular society and needs to factor that awareness into how governance is undertaken so that it's undertaken in ways that promote peace and that don't exacerbate those drivers of conflict and fragility. So that's quite key. So in terms of different models and approaches to peace building, I think that if you take any complex problem or challenge in the world that we face, I'm a big believer that, well, of course, I have my favorite paradigms and approaches. Oftentimes, we see that we need some of multiple different approaches, right? That there's not usually one answer. And I think hybridity definitely is a really key approach, but it also raises a lot of questions. It's messy. It's not straightforward, you know. So really, I think it's about crafting an engagement between a couple of different approaches, depending on what the challenge is and what after a serious analysis of what the problem is and what the challenges are. And inevitably, I think we would find that addressing any particular complex issue will draw upon several, most likely, to find the right answer. And then in terms of the social contract, that's a tough one. <laughs> I'm not sure quite what the question was. It sounded like it's about, you know, do we have a global social contract around health, I think, and is the WHO playing that role. I mean, I think it's profoundly difficult to get every country in the world to agree upon a particular approach and a particular form of punishment if there needs to be one for a country for doing something that is harmful to other countries. I mean, I think it's an incredibly complex question. And we are, you know, in a global environment, we have, for better or for worse, adopted globalization. And it's, you know, impossible for any country to withdraw from that fully, as we see now in the coronavirus. I mean, it started in one place and it's everywhere. And, you know, I think that as many of the global leaders are calling upon, a social contract isn't just a given. It's not just there and objective. You know, we can objectively see it and identify it and we all agree to what it is. But it is something that we should be working towards. You know, we have to. I mean, it's, our lives depend upon it. How else are we going to function if we don't collaboratively work together to try and collectively address, you know, COVID-19 and, and the host of other global complex challenges that are on our plate and coming towards our <laughs> supper time in the near future? So, yeah, I'll leave it there. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time, Prof. Great session, very informative. And yeah, we'll be posting this on YouTube so people can use it for reference. Just a note to everyone. Firstly, thank you so much, everyone, for joining and giving us your time and attention. Next week's session is actually learning about governance to the lens of water. So I look forward to seeing you all next week. Have a good afternoon. This podcast was brought to you by, by, by the VIS School of Governance. For more information, visit their website on www.wits.ac.za slash WSG.